Hi, and welcome to Better Than New, a podcast to help you find your next cool used car, truck, or SUV at a price you'll love. I'm your host, Gary Crenshaw, and today we're checking back in with Nick Bodiford to see how our five simple but essential rules for finding a cool used car worked for him in his search for a four-wheel drive SUV. He ended up with something really cool at an amazing price that we'll hear about in just a moment. So hop in, buckle up, and let's go for a drive. So hey, Nick, uh, welcome back to Better Than New. Great to have you back on. I know you've had some success. You did find a car, right? Yeah. And I've actually seen it, so we'll talk about it here in a second. But last time we were talking about the five essential rules to help you find a, a used car you love. The first one was know your budget. Second was know what you want. Third was be realistic. Fourth was be patient. And the last one was be ready. Your budget last time was, I believe, you started out at 5000 but then it bumped up a little bit. Uh, I think I spent 7200 overall. Was that your final budget number? Were you trying to stay around seven grand? Under the perfect circumstance, I was okay with going up to basically about eight. But after that, we're, then we're talking mission creep. Well, you did great. So let's go to uh, know what you want. You were pretty specific about what you wanted. You wanted four-wheel drive. You wanted something that you could go camping in, could carry the dog in. You could travel with it. It was going to be reliable. And you stayed on that track. I think that that was the most important step for me, was knowing knowing what I wanted. So it helped you to go through that process, to sort of winnow that down. Yeah. I thought I knew what I wanted. And then I learned a lot more about what I actually wanted and then which cars had what I wanted. And so while I was able to narrow things down quite a bit, I also, in the, at the very last second, realized, hey, there's, I actually have a little bit bigger selection than I thought I did. I think on your list, you had the Forerunner, which was kind of your favorite, but you also had Isuzu Rodeo, Isuzu Trooper. You looked at uh, Mitsubishi Monteros, Honda Passport. So you had kind of a wide list. And the cool thing is... You didn't buy anything off that list. Ultimately, the top option was the Forerunner, and I continued kind of whittling things down. And and to be fair, I actually discovered that there are quite a lot of Forerunners available, and some of those Isuzus are actually harder to find, which I don't think was the case last time I was uh, car shopping in whatever it was, 2016 or 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, the forerunners, you know, they're just going forever. But yeah, that the forerunner was the springboard for what I ultimately ended up on. Well, I got to say, with the pandemic, the whole availability of cars is really pretty wonky. It's completely different than a year ago. People may be holding on to their cars longer, or they just don't want to put them up for sale because they don't want to deal with somebody who might have COVID. It's it's really going to be interesting to see how that plays out in the next six to 12 months as you know people get vaccinated and things hopefully get better. It, it is definitely different than it used to be, and it's, it's harder to find good stuff. But you did well. Let's move on to number three, be realistic. And I'll, I think I'll combine that with be patient because they kind of go hand in hand. You did a really good job with this. Initially, it was really hard because I started out with the the know what you want stage. But the point is, learning patience was was extremely important. Well, the last one, be ready, was an interesting one for you. I know your budget number was lower. It did go up. But there was a period of time where you were waiting for some cash to come in that you didn't quite have yet. You were texting me and like, oh, I found this car. What should I do? And it's like, well, do you have the money? I was frantic. And I, yeah, and I I was short. I was waiting for a a transfer to complete, but that was a good forced window for me to sit back and just read a lot and learn more. Mm -hmm. 
but uh, that top four runner history page, that was extremely helpful. Just reading mm-hmm. every aspect of every make and model starting in 1984 and, and on. But you were close to getting the cash and you found something a little different. What'd you find? Yeah, so I found a first generation 2002 Toyota Sequoia, which is quite a bit larger than the Forerunner. But that ultimately didn't really matter to me. What what I came to realize, I wanted one that had a four wheel ABS. I wanted at least one locking differential. And uh, the studies were starting to be done that were showing that uh, single car accidents were significantly reduced with vehicle skid control cars. And so I thought, okay, well, you know, if, if my intent is to take this thing to go both be a daily driver, but also to go camping with it and go off-roading to a, a certain extent to get to, you know, fun locations, mm-hmm. I was going to want something that was going to keep me from sliding off of a muddy road, so to speak. So then it's finding the sweet spot of finding something with VSE, vehicle skid control, also their traction control system, which is called A-Track. And the year for the Forerunner that that was the 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 whole the thing was in 2001, and so that's when I started looking. Okay, 2001, 2001, maybe 2002, and I saw this Toyota Sequoia, and it only had 177,000 miles on it. And a lot of the Forerunners I was looking at in my price range were 230. Maybe there was one, you know, here and there mm-hmm. around 2000, but a lot of them were 250,000. Some uh, that were like 2008s that probably would have been great were up to. 290 or 300,000. And that's not something that I wanted. Tons of miles. Yeah. So when I saw this 177,000 mile Sequoia, I thought, okay, well, I don't know anything about the Sequoia, but had VSC, had a, uh, a track, had both two and four wheel drive capabilities, which is awesome. So if I want to save gas in the city, two wheel drive is super helpful. And then in the emergency case scenario, where if, if something hits the fan, the Sequoia also has a center locking differential and four low. So if I never need to like blast out of the snow, which I probably won't, I do have that capability. Uh, the fact that it is gorgeous on the inside and has their trusty yeah, iForce 4.7 liter V8 is just a, a bonus. It's really clean. I, I got a chance to see yeah. it yesterday and, and drive it. And you can tell it lived in a garage. You can tell that it wasn't abused. Tell us a little bit about the owner. It was a, a single owner vehicle, right? That's another thing that's that's on the know what I want list is I, I wanted minimal owners and finding one is as minimal as you can get. So this this family that they bought it originally in 2002 and they basically used it as their highway travel car where they would go do road trips as a family, mm-hmm. um, you know, having a bunch of little kids in the backseat is, you know, they can lead to some stains, but I can't find any. Yeah, it didn't look um, dirty to me. It looked clean. It was not driven off road. It was not driven hard. It basically just got big miles put on it in in chunks at a time. It was really kind of a, a perfect uh, uh, ownership history. One thing I love about Toyotas from that era, from the late 90s, early 2000s, they're either completely torn up or they're pristine. They're like almost perfect. And then they have a little bit of wear. They look like they're maybe 30, 40, 50,000 miles old, but they don't look 177,000 miles old. I think Toyota has a little factory up on a mountain in Tibet or something where they make this material that's from the gods that doesn't wear out. I mean, I looked at that seat. There's no wear on the bolster. It was weird. It was like, wow, this thing looks almost new. Surprising. It looks great and it feels great. It's easily the most comfortable car that I've ever owned. 
it's it's like a lazy boy and it's got the armrest and everything I, I it's extremely comfortable it is comfortable and i gotta say when you combine it with the 4.7 liter v8 that comes in the car i gotta admit i'm a little jealous it's not a car i'm looking for but you know i get it, i fall in love really easy and i and i got in the car and, and i was like i could see myself having one of these yeah I, i'm i'm really happy for you i think it's a, it's a really great rig so yesterday when you came by here, you, we did the quick drive and then you took it in to have a couple minor things done to it. There's really not much wrong with the car though. That's right. Someone just put in a, a, a brake pad incorrectly. Other than that, they were really kind of impressed with it. No issues whatsoever. No. Yeah, no issue. So I, I put it through a, uh, what they call a, a potential, it's like a potential buyer's inspection or something oh, pre-purchase like Pre-purchase inspection? Yeah, pre-purchase, post-purchase. Post-purchase. <laughs> yeah. So that's the other thing. The uh, the records, they were pretty good. They had a ton of info yeah. on Carfax. They didn't quite have as much like paper in hand as I would have liked, but it was apparent that it had been meticulously maintained, being serviced a couple times a year mm-hmm. and always at the same place at Toyota of Kirkland. So it I mean, that, that's a high quality place. It's, it's well rated. Oh yeah. It's um, a dealership. So. Yeah. So the, the mechanics, they, what they said was, yeah, I mean, we found the issue with the brakes, but other than that, it was a pretty good looking truck. I think it's worth a couple thousand dollars more than you paid for it. Based on what I've seen in this market with the pandemic, there's less inventory. There's a lot of used car dealers that go around and buy up rigs like this because they sell well, families like to have them. So what was the price that you paid? It was 6,500. 6500 is great. I mean, that could have easily been a on a dealer lot that would have been 9 or 10 grand, and I could see you easily paying 8 8500 for that. Yeah, they they were asking uh 7000 and that ad had been up for like man, going on close to 3 weeks and that you know, this is I've already talked to you off a little bit about this off air about like stigma of the Sequoia being like a mom mobile when it's it's pretty close to being a land cruiser. Right. It's about a foot longer. It's a little bit heavier, but the angle at which you could approach a hill and go up in that thing is not as steep as a Land Cruiser, but really, unless you're rock crawling, who cares? So so they were asking uh, 7000 And so when I went to go look at the Sequoia, I said, hey, would you guys be willing to, are you negotiable on the price? You didn't really seem into it at first, but I just said, hey, 6500 cash in hand. And he went, oh, okay, yeah, actually, I, we could probably make that work. He was all right with that. And I, it doesn't hurt to ask. And I think given that it had been listed for around 20 days, they- Yeah, that worked in your favor. They were a little soft at that point. And compliments to them. They were super nice when they uh, showed up to give it to me. We took it for one last long drive. There there was little fuel left in the tank. And when I paid him, he handed me back 50 to go fill it up. So, really? Anyway, yeah, wow. that was very nice of him. Okay. Yeah. Service with a smile. And this was a private owner. This was the original owner that you bought it from. Or you, you actually worked with his son? Yeah, it was the son-in-law. Oh, the son-in-law. Okay. Um, and he just, it was just because the owner who was a little bit older, he didn't want to deal direct with the public with COVID. Yeah, he's high risk. And so he asked his son-in-law to help him sell it. Okay. I was actually surprised that car sat on the market as long as it did. The funny thing about looking at cars, whether it's on Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist or whatever, you know, as long as the gaps for the panels are, are straight and there's no big dents or anything, everything looks pretty good on a Craigslist ad. Unless the photos are blurry, then you can't see anything. So in looking at it, it's like, well, yeah, it looks decent. I don't know. It's silver. It, you know, whatever. But seeing it in person, I was like, 
this is really nice. I mean, there were a couple of blemishes, little stuff, scratch on the bumper in the front and in the back. But those are easy fixes, relatively. Now, if you go to a shop and have it professionally done, it's going to be more expensive. But there are some ways to touch that up, for, especially for a car that, that you paid $6,500 for. You're not going to go in and have $2,000 worth of paintwork to make it perfect because you're going to go camping and your dog's going to jump up and scratch it or tent's going to fall over on it or something silly is going to happen. But that thing looked good. I was, I was impressed. Yeah, I keep having these moments where I like to, I, I just like to look at it, take a walk, <laughs> go take a peek at it because it's really pretty. And a uh, nice thing about living in Seattle is that the the rain keeps it, you know, mud free. Yeah, um, there you go. A funny story about the uh, the whole, everything looks good in a photo. There was uh, a forerunner that I was interested in and I saw it like a couple hours after it went up and right away it had a uh, sale pending that they, they edited and put in the title. And that sale pending was there overnight and in the morning and the sale pending was gone. And I noticed they had added another photo to the series and it was a close up of the antenna, which turned out to be an arrow, like a, like a bow and arrow <laughs> arrow that the antenna had been missing. Oh, nice. So I guess they just jammed an arrow into the thing to That's be a funny. Nice touch. Yeah. But going back and looking at like the zoomed out photos, you can see it, but you really have to squint and, those are the kind of things that, I mean, if you're inspecting it in person, you'd see that it had an arrow and it had the little feathers on the top. But uh, sometimes things like that, I mean, if they took the feathers off and painted it silver and just stuck it in there, you might not notice. Yeah, You might get it home and go, what? An arrow? Come on. No. Yeah. Stupid stuff like that it does happen when you're out looking. Well, since you're on the subject, what about any other fails? When you were out looking, stuff that you just went, oh my God, that's just terrible. I guess just a, a big learning experience for me, was, and I think we talked about it on the, the previous episode, but I had a, a couple experiences where I was hoping to go view a car the next day. And in one instance, I called to schedule time and they said, this time works tomorrow. That's great. And they called me back 20 minutes later and said, hey, the car just sold. Right. So there, there were a number of those instances where you see something go up and within a couple hours, it's gone. No one owes you anything, right? When they're trying to sell, no, when they're it, trying to sell a car. So next, you could say, hey, can I be there in two hours? <laughs> Which two hours was one of them. I say, I, I'd be there in two hours. They said, great. And then I got an email about an hour later, sold. Like we talked about last time, there's always a quicker gun, a faster gun in the West. One thing I think I got lucky was that <clears throat> this car was probably like 45 minutes north of Seattle. So I think that might have been something that was prohibitive for some people. Hey, you know, if you're okay. looking for a car and you're in the city and uh, you got to go somewhere 45 minutes north, you know, that might be a bus, that might be a ride from a friend mm-hmm. during COVID. That's that's tough. So if you are looking, don't be afraid to expand your search a little bit and just plan ahead and know how you're going to be able to get up there. That's a great point. I always start with a pretty wide search. Again, we're in the Seattle area, but I'll look in Portland. I'll look in Boise, Idaho. I'll even look in California because if you find something that's great, you could fly down and you could drive it back and you can have like an interesting road trip. Now, I don't recommend that to everybody because you have to deal with the whole long distance checkout thing. But I did it 10 years ago with a Audi station wagon that I bought. I had them take the car to a Audi dealership. They did a pre-purchase inspection on it. I got the inspection back. I talked with the mechanics. We worked a deal over the phone and I flew out. And drove back, well, sort of in the same day. It took about 20 hours, the whole round trip thing. I drove like 14 hours back 
it was it was crazy, but hey, you know, why not? Um, do you have any advice to people? I mean, I know we've talked about a lot of things that you learned, but is there any like, you know, the one thing or the, you know, the two things that I, I will always do next time I, I buy a car? Yeah, I would say impose a wait time on yourself. So I, I think that week of time where I was forced to just read about every single model. And again, that's ultimately what took me from not just the the model of car that I want. No, it's what aspects of a car do I want? So I, I if I'm doing this again, I'll impose some time on myself to say, okay, go research this and figure out exactly is, is this the model that you want or is it just aspects of this model that you can actually find elsewhere at a much more affordable price? Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's great advice. Anything else? When comparing to my last experience, take the time while you're making the purchase. Last time I bought the car, I bought my old Nissan Pathfinder, which again, it's it served me great, but it had a lot more issues that popped up right away that a garage could have told me. So do that pre-purchase inspection. Exactly. Yeah. Pre-purchase inspection. Yeah. It's or post-purchase inspection in your case. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, I felt I felt all right with with all of the uh, the auto records that I had this time around. But um, it takes a half an hour for the the garage to do it. They scan the codes. They pop a wheel or two off, and they inspect the the engine that with a mechanic's eye, so to speak. So two things I want to mention. One was in the process of doing your inspection they discovered the wheel lock key was missing. So they couldn't actually get the wheels off until you had that key. But I think you mentioned the previous owner couldn't find it either. So I just want to make a note to people, if you're out looking for a car and you find something, make sure you ask if the car has a wheel lock on it. Hey, do you have the key for that? Otherwise, it's really hard to get that off. Yeah, I didn't even know that key locks were a thing. (laughs) Yeah, most people wouldn't think about it. It's a pretty minute part of the whole purchase process. So... The fact that you missed it is no big deal, but then later, I mean, imagine if you'd been stuck on the side of the road somewhere going, how do I get this wheel off? That would have been bad. So when it comes to the pre-purchase inspection, I always recommend people get a pre-purchase inspection when they can. However, when you're buying cars that are in a lower price range, like you were looking at some forerunners that were less than $5,000, and those were the ones that were selling in less than 24 hours, sometimes in less than just a few hours. You don't have the luxury to go out and do the pre-purchase inspection because the owner won't let you do it. They're like, hey, I got another guy coming. If if you don't want it, I'm just going to sell it. So in that particular case, you're kind of stuck with looking at service records and looking at the car itself and determining, is this going to be okay? Do I think I'm okay here? And if you're not comfortable, I wouldn't buy it. Or spending a little bit more money or finding a seller that is willing to let you do that pre-purchase inspection, which may take a day or two days because you have to take it to a shop and they have to you know, go through that process. When you can do it, I, I always recommend doing it, but I certainly understand and have myself purchase cars without one when they're a lower price. And I kind of went, you know what, I'm pretty sure it's okay. And if you can survive losing that $6,000 in the worst of all possible cases, it's not the end of the world. Yeah. Again, the I think the reason I felt all right not not doing that is that there were some uh, recent maintenance records and a, a really detailed Carfax, which I I went with the uh, three Carfax bundle. It was like sixty bucks to to run three of them, and mm-hmm. that was awesome. I ran all three. Uh, third one was a charm. Carfax is interesting in that they they do charge a lot, especially for a single Carfax. I think it's what 
$39, or something like that. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous. However, I do recommend people do that. I mean, there's some other things like Carfax that kind of give some of the same information. Uh, don't I don't remember the name off the top of my head, but I would definitely do a Carfax. In your case, it had the shops on there that the car had been worked on in the past. They don't always list that information, but sometimes it does. And you were able to call those shops and get information about those cars That's uh, right. from the mechanics who worked on it. That was a really cool experience. I, I called a number of garages, and uh, each time they were really happy to help. What I found was they, in most cases, preferred knowing the license plate rather than the VIN. But okay, yeah, when, when we were able to identify what the car was, you just call them and say, hey, you guys serviced a car a little while ago. I've got the information on it, and I'm thinking about buying it. Can you tell me what you thought of it, what you noticed? Um, in two of the cases, they personally recognized or remembered the car. And so they were able to say, oh, I liked it. I didn't like it, whatever. And they were able to access their files so they could say what needed to be done, what was just done, all that. That was super helpful. And um, props to all the garage guys out there who are happy to take time out of their day to do that. Because they're the only thing they might might get is future business, but they might not too. Uh, but right. every person I talked to was was totally willing to help. That's great. Well, it sounds like you had a great experience. You certainly ended up with a great vehicle. I'm just really happy that you got it, and I can't wait till you loan it to me for camping. Sounds good. (laughs) Okay. Thanks for joining me on the podcast and for letting the listeners know what kind of process you went through and how it worked for you. And the next time you do this, you know who to call. I'll call you, Gary. Thank you. All right, Nick. Take care, buddy. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Better Than New. Hopefully, you're able to use our five essential used car buying rules, just like Nick did, to find your next cool used car. If you need a quick review of the rules, you'll find them outlined in the show notes for Episode 2. And be sure to join us next time for more recommendations and advice on which used car, truck, or SUV might be right for you. In the meantime, I'm Gary Crenshaw, this is Better Than New, and I'm really happy you came along for the ride.